I'm Naomi Klein, and I am at Navarra Media right now, having just done a wonderful in-depth interview. And this is why I love Navarra Media. And I listen regularly and watch to find out what the hell is going on in the UK. It is so critical to have independent media that we can trust, that goes deep on the issues and also lets people stay up on the day-to-day twists and turns. It's going to be especially important for your next election. So I'm incredibly grateful that Navarra Media exists and it exists because people support it. So make sure to support Navarra Media. We need left institutions and that means that we have to support them when they're doing such great work as Navarra Media is. Thanks. What are we listening to there? Apart from the sadly unavoidable roar of the wind, that was the sound of activists from Just Stop Oil being very nearly run over by a coach they are standing, and at one point, sitting in front of. The activists, moments before, have sallied forth into the road on the ferry bridge crossing that connects Weymouth in Dorset to the small town of Portland and have stopped the traffic. Car by car, they then let the traffic through to focus on just the coach and a single car in front of it. But there is a major difference here from other similar actions by Just Stop Oil. This, after all, was no ordinary coach. It was carrying a busload of migrants from a hotel in Exmouth, where they had been kept, onto the Bibby Stockholm, a converted barge designed to hold migrants in conditions Just Stop Oil says a tantamount to a concentration camp. And Portland is therefore no ordinary town, or perhaps an all-too-ordinary one. It's the site of one of the most conspicuously brutal parts of the UK's current migration politics. But what is Just Stop Oil, a group whose central demand is its name, and whose focus has been resolutely on the climate, doing there? They offered me this summary. When we take action against the causes of the climate crisis, we're working to preserve people's right to remain in their homelands, And when we take action against the baby Stockholm, we are taking action to defend people's right to move safely with dignity. I was intrigued. How do these two halves fit together? Can the same tactics that were used to try and pressure the government into halting new oil and gas licenses also be useful against an increasingly brutal system like the UK migration regime? Had Just Stop Oil given up on their demand for the mitigation of climate change, that is, broadly speaking, trying to stop climate change from happening, and turned instead to the fraught and difficult politics of adaptation, that is, the question of how we live with the changes climate change brings about. I wondered if this action against the government's migration policies pointed the way for a new round of climate politics in the UK, and perhaps even more basically, what the connection between climate change and migration actually was. And I also wanted to know, perhaps most of all, about the kind of people Just Stop Oil was in the process of training, for a fight that would very likely last for the rest of their lives. My name is Richard Haynes, and you're listening to Navarra FM. In this episode, I want to take seriously Just Stop Oil's strategy and its critics as well. I want to think about its strategy, not as something implemented flawlessly, but as an emergent and chaotic and often misfiring thing that attempts to patch itself and shift as it goes along. 
Because for my money, this action near the Bibby Stockholm was one of the most intriguing and sympathetic actions in JSO's history to date. I should say before we continue that Just Stop Oil, as a condition for giving me their time, wanted me to note that they invite people who are interested to hear more about why they took this action to join their Zoom call on Wednesday the 25th of October 2023, or one of their many Zoom calls throughout the year, and a link you can find in the show description. Just Stop Oil is one of the most contentious groups in the UK climate movement. Both their tactics, currently slow marching in the street, and their aims, to prevent any new oil or gas licences being issued by the government, have come under fire, as has the sometimes opaque connection between the two. Are they too radical? Are they not radical enough? Or somehow both at the same time? Back in 2020, Andreas Malm, a Swedish Marxist who has appeared on Navarra FM before, surveyed the landscape of the climate movement, which had been focused in 2018 and 2019 largely on actions like Extinction Rebellions and Fridays for Future, and called in this landscape for a radical flank. It's overwhelmingly not theory that drives movements, but nevertheless a radical flank did seem to appear. In the UK, that meant just stop oil, but this wasn't exactly the kind of flank that Malm had called for. It was, after all, determined to be non-violent and refuse the kinds of sabotage that Malm had said would be essential. And it was continuous with Extinction Rebellion in the sense that both had sizable influences from Roger Hallam. However, JSO was radical in the sense of embodying a kind of visceral, unwavering commitment and in its direct disruptions to everyday life. Their most famous protest to date was the Sunflowers protest, where two activists threw a can of soup at one of Vincent van Gogh's sunflower paintings. Security! What is worth more, art or life? The painting itself was protected, as JSO activists are keen to point out, although the frame did come in for some damage. But who cares? They reasoned, when the planet is on fire. The action was a kind of demonstration of capacity, of just how much attention could be garnered by doing something very simple. And although attention is not the endpoint of political activism, it is certainly a major component of it. If this attack on art might seem a little confused, as many have argued, it would probably have had at least one major supporter, the situationist Guy Debord, who wrote Society of the Spectacle. In 1963, Debord wrote a short piece about militants in Caracas, in Venezuela, who had taken some of Gauguin and Van Gogh's paintings hostage, intending to use them as a ransom for political prisoners. The paintings were then recaptured by the state. As they were being driven away, militants threw bombs at the police vans carrying the paintings, although they failed to destroy them. This failure, wrote Debord, although unfortunate, is clearly an exemplary way to treat the art of the past, to bring it back into play in life, and to re-establish priorities. Despite this, of course, unacknowledged support from beyond the grave by one of the most famous political theorists of the 20th century, JSO eventually moved on to a new phase of their strategy, slow marching. Marching is the most basic and simple tactic that protest movements have used for hundreds and hundreds of years You march through the streets and what you're doing when you're marching is you're saying to everybody who comes in your way, you have revolutionary potential, you have a right to know about the crisis that is endangering 
your children's future and you can come and join us. It is an invitation in its purest sense and it is an absolutely basic way in which we as citizens can exercise our right to protest. I'm Indigo Rumbelow, um, I'm from Swansea, I'm living in London and I'm co-founder of Insulate Britain and Just Stop Oil. The basic idea of slow marching is walking down the street in front of cars and lorries and everyone else, and not exactly stopping them, but massively slowing them down. It's a technique for disrupting everyday life. And although it might seem extremely radical to some, for reasons we'll get into, it's deployed in a service of something really quite narrow and specific, the end of new oil and gas licences in the UK, which the government has refused to actually do, although JSO do point out that the demand is now much more widely supported including, they say, by Labour. We're going from strength to strength with our strategy. We started um, just uh, February of last year sending a letter to the UK government, then Boris, demanding that he stops licensing new fossil fuels. And he replied saying that fossil fuels would continue to play an important part in meeting the UK's energy supply. So this marked the moment that we moved into civil resistance with us. And since we've done this, Thousands of people have come to join us in action. We've propelled to 92% name recognition. Every single major political party, bar the Tories, is um, running with this demand in their manifesto. It might seem now, given last Thursday's action against the coach carrying the migrants, that Just Stop Oil is broadening its focus. The shift to the appalling conditions of migration is undoubtedly a move towards a wider politics, although it's not one that everyone sees in the same terms. I spoke to someone who JSO quote, Professor Tim Lenton of the University of Exeter. He's known for his work on climactic tipping points. I'd heard JSO supporters describe us as on the road to climate hell. What did Professor Lenton think of this characterization? Well, it's emotive language. Um, purgatory might be a better metaphor than hell. That's the, that's the job of our activist organisation to move people's hearts as well as their minds. So. JSO were particularly focused in the messaging for this action on one aspect of Lenton's work. In the global growth of places, with an average mean temperature of 29 degrees centigrade or above. Currently, that's less than 1% of the world's surface, places where very few people live. But because of climate change, these spaces are predicted to grow to encompass the area where between 1 and 3 billion people will live. 29 degrees centigrade is a very far cry from the UK, where the average annual temperature recently crossed 10 degrees centigrade for the first time. That's year-round, day and night. The UK is therefore a little cooler than the main bump in human population that occurs around an average of 13 degrees centigrade. But there's also this second bump, up around 27 degrees centigrade, mostly associated with tropical monsoon climates. 29 degrees might not seem too far away from 27, but Professor Lenton told me that the drop-off in the ability of populations to survive between the two was really quite abrupt, and the 27-degree areas are rapidly heating up. So over the next 50 years, we're likely to move from a starting point where almost no one experiences a 29-degree average year-round to a world where about a third of everyone does. And in the next seven years alone, those areas are projected to spread out to around 1.2 billion people. 
Both these facts were quoted in a JSO press release. But I wanted to know if Professor Lenton thought there was any further context I should know. We don't actually pretend to capture all the people who are going to be exposed to climate harm because we don't do a good job of capturing places that are seasonally experiencing extreme heat and humidity because of our basing our approach on the annual average. Um, of course, there are some people who are rich and have air conditioning and are not directly exposed to these extreme conditions that can cause harm. So there's much more nuance in all directions, which is what you'd expect. But Professor Lenton told me that readers of his paper had been keen to extrapolate some quite drastic and even objectionable conclusions from it. The most obvious one would be um, people would choose to interpret as, oh, there's going to be massive migration and with a political bias against migration or from a populist perspective that is uh, will use the thought of millions of people or billions of people migrating across the planet as just an even stronger argument to close borders and restrict free movement of people, which I'm politically, personally, again. The vast majority of migration is likely to be, as migration often has been, internal. People moving between different cities and provinces of a single country. The worst outcome of this would be if people couldn't use migration as sometimes the most effective form of adaptation. If they were so poor and stuck in what you might call a hot poverty trap that they couldn't get out of the trouble, um, the climate trouble, purgatory or otherwise, that they might be getting exposed to. Professor Lenton told me that migration is adaptation to worsening conditions. And those conditions are not just environmental but the product of a long historical process that Timothy Lenton and his co-authors characterise as climate apartheid. This is a fundamental issue of human harm and the injustices of climate change. The interpretation of science has always been fraught with political considerations. But what's newish here is that the kinds of political interpretation of climate science that Timothy Lenton is referring to are no longer one-dimensional conflicts between those who deny climate change and those who accept its reality. Instead, across the political spectrum, much climate science has been accepted, and it's now the political response that is being more and more contested. And the place where it's perhaps most likely to be contested still further in the future is around the topic of climate migration. People moving around is common. People moving around for environmental reasons is also very common, and has happened throughout history but I wanted to find out what climate migration meant now. So climate-linked migration um, is a term that in itself is a bit of a challenging and debated concept. Um, Both climate refugee, climate-induced migration, these terms sort of can sometimes hide the complexity of the human mobility and potentially can be used to to undermine people who move. Um, You know, people have been moving for climate-related events for quite some time now, and the vast majority of this migration happens within borders. It's actually very limited in which people are leaving their countries and moving across borders due to climate. My name is Tyrone Scott. I am the Senior Movement Building and Activism Officer at War on Want. Climate migration isn't just a matter of people moving from the global south to the global north. In fact, the USA is one of the main sites of current climate migration. Changing patterns of flooding and wildfires and coastal inundation are already pushing people to move. There are also other big questions in the politics of what are sometimes called climate refugees. Like, should we even use that term at all? Climate refugee 
is right now at this point not legally recognised. And there is a sometimes competing schools of thought as whether we are looking to advocate for climate refugee to be a recognised term. I guess there's benefits in that because it's legitimising the fact that the climate crisis is real. It's going to mean that we are going to have more forced displacement and migration, especially if we don't look to divert funds that we're currently using for militarisation and securitisation of our borders into climate finance, which is absolutely not the case right now. So we're not really... So providing the conditions which will allow communities to essentially give them the right to stay. You know, um, quite often when we speak about migration um, and refugees, we're speaking about the right to move, you know, and that's absolutely what we advocate for um, sort of across the, both the migrant justice movement and hopefully embedded within the climate justice movement too. What's equally important is the right to stay. That's what JSO had told me, with the two parts of the meaning of the disruption of the coach carrying the migrants to the Bibby Stockholm. So why wouldn't you want to use the term? Lots of the criticism of the term focuses on how claiming that problems in the natural environment directly cause violence in some way depoliticizes those problems. It makes it seem like the people who live in precarious environments, or environments that have been made precarious, are just functions of those environments, doomed to live out the dictates of their conditions, like a reflex. An article in the journal Climatic Change back in April found that reading about climate migration might lead to a backlash against migrants. And there are many other ways in which talking about climate migration can go wrong. Yeah, so dehumanisation, especially within the context of, of migration, is something that we see, and we have seen for years, you know, whether we're talking about climate migration, migration due to, due to war and destruction in people's countries, is, is a reduction to numbers is a very, very clear one sometimes. You know, we are, we're given... A lot of rhetoric sometimes of these ridiculously high numbers. You know, sometimes people are throwing like we're going to have a billion people looking to come over due to due to climate migration. Again, just instantly dehumanizes the people that have to move. It's just a large number. There's no um, there's no person there. And then similarly, it's when we use terms that are that are there to incite fear. I mean, we constantly see terms like wave of migrants are going to enter this country, are going to enter Europe, floods of migrants. It's always ironically climate-related terms that are, that are being used. And actually, for the first time last year, uh, or last week, sorry, the, at the Conservative conference, we heard Suella Braverman, first time I heard, hurricanes of, of migrants as well. So I think they're sort of reaching now to find new terms. I think it'll be a week or two until we hear typhoon. And as Tyrone is keen to point out, it's possible for rich countries to adapt to the real levels of migration they might face. If only they focus their attention on the things that everyone actually needs, like housing and safe passage rather than on the securitization of borders, which is the current focus. There was a report recently that the world's biggest emitters of greenhouse gases are spending on average 2.3 times as much on arming their borders as they are on climate finance. Um, and in some countries, that is you know, as much as 15 times as much for the, for the worst offenders. With the UK, between 2013 and 2018, spending 2.7 billion per year on border militarization and just 977 million, so almost a quarter of that, on climate financing. So I think as long as as, as long as we are prioritizing militarization, securitization of our borders, we're prioritizing the pursuit of a profit over the welfare of people and the planet, then yeah, I can see those figures um, being absolutely correct. I suppose my optimism and my uh, desire to, to live um, you know, a long life uh, means I'm hoping that we are one day going to actually put in the policies in place that means we're tackling this climate crisis. So Tyrone argued that the focus on securitization wasn't just a response to worsening conditions, but part of the structure that allowed countries in the global north to bury their heads in the sand 
and not go as fast as they ought to on climate change. Securitization was both an effect of climate change and deeply linked with its causes. Which brings us back to JSO and their attempt to stop a coachload of migrants being carried to the Bibi Stockholm. This new action fits into a history of tactical innovation. In order to get a clearer sense of the organisation, I attended a JSO non-violence training. It took place in one of those big, empty, unassuming halls in London that formed the drab background to a huge amount of civic activity in the UK, a converted church building, or something similar perhaps, but certainly surrounded by a ring of stackable chairs and complete with an ageing hot water boiler for a cup of tea and break. I wanted to learn about not just how JSO conducted their training in a practical sense, but also about the kind of person they wanted to form through doing so. As opposed to the indefinite blockades that Extinction Rebellion or Insulate Britain were famous for, JSO's slow marches are seemingly designed to frustrate motorists without actually making them murderous with rage. In that quite limited sense, the slow marches are a kind of climb down from Extinction Rebellion's strategy of blocking up huge central areas of cities. Just Stop Oil also have a blue lights policy that means they get off the road whenever they need to let an emergency vehicle of whatever kind pass. However, the variety of targets selected, and some might say they seem basically random, and the relentlessness of Just Stop Oil's approach, marching every day, make them seem more radical to the general public in other ways. And of course, the motorists who feel they've been unfairly targeted are still likely to get pretty fucking furious. This is the most common criticism of Just Stop Oil, that their targeting of everyday motorists has almost nothing to do with the actual aims they want to achieve. The breadth of targets for Just Stop Oil's activism is clearly born of exasperation. Nothing else has worked. And so, acting on the imperative that of course something must be done, JSO turn to, if their critics are to be believed, just sort of doing anything. Of course, it's not totally wrong to think that the car, and the humble motorist sat within it, might have something to do with the climate crisis. And so slow marching in a way that disrupts them might have something to do with that crisis, although it's not always obvious what. That's one of the central difficulties of climate change politics, that the crisis of life in the future seeps out of almost every aspect of life in the present, in all its unstoppable totality. But even so, why not go after the more central bits of fossil fuel infrastructure directly, like other climate groups do? It's something that Indigo has thought about and has a well-practiced answer to. So there's no point in me knocking on the doors of the fossil fuel headquarters being completely ignored by the British people, completely ignored by the people inside that office, completely being ignored by the press. There's absolutely no point in me doing that. I'm not seizing the moment in time that I've got and the capacity that I've got to refuse to cooperate with the system. But that's a tricky argument to make in the heat of an encounter with angry motorists. And therefore, for the most part, the activists don't generally try. Instead, they adopt an affect of almost complete detachment. Activists have been hit and kicked and punched and otherwise beaten up. 
but they never respond in kind. Just Stop Oil has an absolute commitment to non-violent action, so we will not take part in action which harms life. There's some research to back up the idea that non-violence is likely to be effective, or at least more so than other paths. One comprehensive survey of social movement tactics called Why Civil Resistance Works, the strategic logic of non-violent conflict, found that major non-violent campaigns have achieved success 53% of the time, compared with only 26% for violent resistance campaigns. Why? The difference, they argue, is down to non-violent campaigns being more likely to attract mass support. This greater level of participation tends to lead to more tactical innovation, more loyalty shifts amongst the regime's supporters, and raises the political, economic and social costs to the regime, all of which increase the chances of success. Critics of this view point out that very little of the research has anything to do with changing energy systems, even with influencing liberal democracies. This is another seeming tension inside Just Stop Oil's strategy. They're at once embedded in the history of non-binary resistance, and are also seen as the radical outer edge of the climate movement in the UK. For a political culture that associates radicalism with violence, that's pretty confusing. So although they appear to many as the radical flank of the climate movement, in some ways their absolute commitment to non-violence makes them less radical than the possible climate movements that could yet emerge. How do they stitch together these different seemingly contradictory parts? There is a right for us to have freedom of assembly, to protest. There is the right of people to go about their ordinary lives. But there's a problem, isn't there? That their ordinary lives and going about their ordinary lives is completely under threat because of the decisions of a few people who are hell-bent on destroying everything we hold dear, every single right and liberty we own have our right to clean food, our right to clean water, our right to a five-day week, my right as a woman to vote, is all under threat. This framing is almost that of a radical movement indirectly in defence of normality. And it points to the idea that political radicalism is not some neutral measure, but itself a matter of political contestation. For Just Stop Oil themselves, they want to seem utterly unwaveringly committed, but not violent, not unacceptably radical. How does this tension end up resolving itself? Arguably in a kind of aesthetics of holiness and martyrdom. And that's what you get in many of the videos of Just Stop Oil that have become well known. There's something almost serene in the way they carry themselves. It's an aesthetics of martyrdom. And this aesthetics is seemingly designed to conjure a long history of non-violent conflict. The suffragettes, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and occasionally slightly nebulous anti-colonial activists. That's of course not to disparage Just Stop Oil activists' inability to conjure this history from memory, but to suggest that there might be a slightly two-dimensional conception of the relationship between non-violence and social change in Just Stop Oil's strategy. That's a criticism I had heard from Chris Saltmarsh as well. And it's a failure to recognise that behind all of these martyr figures, whether it's Martin Luther King or Gandhi or whoever, there were mass movements. There were sometimes armed resistances. Um, and there were incredibly complex like sets of relations within them and between them and the state and them and capital. Um, and again, it, there's a kind of, there's a flattening that goes on there. My name's Chris Saltmarsh. I co-founded the organisation Labour for a Green New Deal. 
And so really we've been making interventions within the Labour movement, so trade unions and the Labour Party, around a kind of socialist climate politics. But despite this criticism, that they had apparently flattened the history of civil resistance, JSO have managed to leverage what's known as the radical flank effect. This effect, where radical action is unpopular itself, but raises support for more moderate action, has been seen throughout the history of civil resistance. Research from the Social Change Lab on the influence of JSO on the public perception of wider environmental movements has shown that as public knowledge of the movement has risen, so too has positive association with other climate movements, although not, as critics are keen to point out, support for actual climate policies. Even critics of Just Stop Oil, like Chris Saltmarsh, acknowledge that. JSO exists within a movement ecology, and that JSO is not the be-all, end-all of the environmental movement. I think its members would probably agree with that, and I think it's reasonable for for critics or supporters um, to agree with that as well. There have been critiques of JSO that have said this is putting people off environmentalism. I think it's important to say that that's not true, and, uh, and yeah, that there has been there has been evidence to suggest that their actions have led for greater support. Maybe not for the exact kind of aesthetic of JSO, but for um, for you know for the for the initiatives of of other organisations. And I think the lesson we can take from that is that actually people are quite tolerant of seemingly radical climate action. Or at least it suggests they might be tolerant of a more radical action when it comes in the form of a committedly and conspicuously non-violent movement. In the training, we were prepared for particularly intense moments of conflict. We were told to focus on our posture, face, our voice, our position relative to the other person, to listen, to remember their humanity. But only once we had done all of these, then to speak at all. I began to wonder if the notion of non-violence here, which seemed to be meant in some sort of spiritual way, was related more to an affect of detachment than to a particular strategy. Or maybe the affect, equal parts moral certitude and unbending non-violence, was the strategy. Almost all the training revolved around cultivating the sort of limp character that you will often see in videos of the slow marchers being attacked by angry motorists. To prepare, our trainer Heidi had us go through a visualisation technique. Start by sitting comfortably in whatever way is best for you. And then close your eyes or lower your gaze and bring your attention to your breath as it flows in and out of your body. Now imagine that you're at an action where you're walking down a road with a slow march team. Notice the sounds of the traffic, the rumbling of cars and lorries on the adjacent carriageway, the smell of the tarmac, the sound of car horns, the people around you. You might be marching slowly holding a banner, or you might be in the middle of a group. Now imagine that you are speaking to a driver who's been held up. They are furious and very worked up and they're directing all their frustration towards you. Imagine this person now in your mind's eye and just observe them with curiosity. It struck me that the focus on mindfulness in the training, and therefore on the idea of non-violence in the strategy, might even be about resolving a contradiction between the targets of the strategy, fossil fuel infrastructure, and its actual effects on the world slowing down motorists. 
Mindfulness was there to smooth over the fact that the targets of slow marching don't actually relate to the climate crisis very directly. It's when you get approached on the street by irate people who point out that the bus you're holding up is one of the solutions to the climate crisis that you start to need some mindfulness. But when pushed, Just Stop Oil activists were more open to the idea that other kinds of action were also permissible in the framework of nonviolence. Might it even somehow include things that seem to directly contrast with it, like sabotage? The question of whether direct sabotage is acceptable really depends on the context. If it's direct sabotage, such as damaging an oil pipeline in a way that causes environmental destruction and directly risks people's lives, that, in my opinion, would not be nonviolent because it's causing harm to other people. Damaging a pipeline before it could be laid and before it could be put into action, I feel that could be nonviolent and acceptable because you're not causing harm to other people, but you're directly addressing the problem. You're causing people to question whether this is the right thing. It's pretty obvious, however, that this kind of action would lead to an even more serious clampdown on the capacity of activists to organise effectively. That's the kind of backlash that has already begun against the climate movement in the UK with the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Act. One other criticism of Just Stop Oil, like Extinction Rebellion, has been that many of their actions, although not all, rely on the arrest of the person in question. A kind of micro-backlash, if you will. You know, growing up as a, you know, as a, as a, as a person of colour, as a black person, um, you know, in this country, the last thing I'm ever going to do, unless, like, I'm absolutely forced to really, is make myself arrestable, you know. And then when you're at those marches and those protests, especially at the conception of them, the best way you could contribute to it was to put yourself forward to be arrestable. So immediately within those first two or three mass climate marches, I'm thinking, well, I can't be as effective, effective as my white counterparts because I just don't have that kind of relationship with the police. I don't have that trust in the police, that safety with the police. And the idea of going into that institution you know, willingly is something that makes me very, very uncomfortable. Uh, that's not to say I haven't been in trouble with the police for climate activism, but, you know, that's a different story. And that was, that's my own choice. But, um, yeah, so that's kind of where it started, I think. But engagement with the question of race has not been always so tone deaf. Um, and it has moved a lot from there. Even just platforming Global South voices, speaking about the plight of the Global South. You know, initially, a lot of the talk around climate change, even before 2018, but even as it started to get, you know, a mass thing, was, was around extinction, was around, you know, our planet's dying, um, you know, our animals are dying. But it wasn't really talking about the, the devastation that's happening right now and has been happening for a very long time. And whether that's the, the, the actual climate-induced, but also you know, the, the destruction of lands and turning lands into sacrifice zones due to the extraction across, well, across Asia, across South America, across Africa, you know, all in the name of, well, essentially all linked to colonial past and all in the name of our corporations, which are there operating you know, um, as, on behalf of our countries. So that conversation has moved significantly since... I entered the movement. I now work very closely with Extinction Rebellion. The physical risks of activism don't end with arrest. There's also the risk of being quite severely injured. Of course, it would be ridiculous to lay the blame for the violence meted out to them on the JSO activists themselves. But it would be equally naive to deny that Just Stop Oil's strategy involves producing the anger of motorists as a kind of risky byproduct. This is similar to what I've heard described for instance by Alice Swift, who appeared on our Climate Strategy podcast earlier in the year called Eat, Sleep, Protest, Repeat, as a strangely synergistic relationship between Just Stop Oil and the right-wing media. Just Stop Oil produced the thing that the media need to hate, 
an eco-mob of dehumanised fanatics, and the right-wing media spread their message far and wide. The end point here is fairly predictable. Danger for just-stop oil activists on the roads. It's a danger that might be willingly assumed by an experienced activist, but it's less clear that it can be assumed by someone younger. The criticism that this style of activism is traumatising its participants, or at the very least burning them out, and furthermore building up anger in the rest of the population, is something that should be taken very seriously. And it's also equally unclear how that strategy of activists endangering themselves on the roads should be changed if Just Stop Oil are no longer simply dealing with conventional motorists, but people hired, perhaps by a private security company, to drive a busload of migrants to a detention centre. People whose taste for violence might be greater, and whose legal protections perversely somewhat stronger. While Just Stop Oil activists were in the road stopping the coach, a handful of men got out of the coach and told the driver of the car in front to simply keep driving. Who were they? It's difficult to do more than speculate. We have no further information on them, and Just Stop Oil itself has told me that it has no plans to pursue complaints against them, or indeed anyone ever, reasoning as it does that all people are contained within systems bigger than themselves, and that going after the individual can be counterproductive. So we might never know who they are, but their presence seemed to me emblematic of a kind of brutal authoritarianism that presages not just far-right government policy, but a kind of far-right personality type as well, given expression by those policies. That goes as well for the driver, who, although there was a clear danger to life, powered on through the activists. And of course the police, who, in the words of a statement given by Just Stop Oil, did not intervene immediately, but appeared out of an unmarked car two minutes after the supporters had been forced off the road. Three of the survivors of this ordeal were arrested at the scene. The charges brought against them were of willful obstruction of a public highway, criminal damage, and the use of threatening words or behaviour to cause alarm or distress. These charges were based on statements given by the coach security staff. Video footage shows the bus making contact with supporters of Just Stop Oil whilst it continued to move forward. No charges were brought against the driver, or anyone advising the driver, concerning the nature of his driving. Here we have all the pieces of a burgeoning authoritarian culture. A legal system indifferent to vigilante aggression against protest, a growing set of obviously racist laws on migration, and a tightening of surveillance. One criticism that I've already raised of Just Stop Oil is that it plays into this increasingly authoritarian feedback loop. We've certainly entered a new period of more intensely authoritarian neoliberalism. And one of the central parts of that has been the increasing crackdown on the climate movement itself. Some of this has been ad hoc and chaotic, like when in early 2020, Priti Patel, the Home Secretary at the time, defended a decision apparently made in error to place Extinction Rebellion on a list of extremist organisations. But other pieces of it have been more deliberate and substantial, like the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act and the Nationality and Borders Act. The PCSC Act gives police a slew of new powers to restrict protest based on noise and duration, and ban completely so-called serious disruption protests. It also introduces a new offence, a public nuisance. 
which carries a maximum penalty of 10 years. It was pretty obviously aimed at Extinction Rebellion and groups like them. Part of the theory of nonviolent action is that a government repressing an avowedly nonviolent movement will look horrendous. But I worried if that was still the case, or if the conditions of neoliberalism in the UK had changed that. On Friday the 6th of October, Dale Vince, the owner of renewable electricity company Ecotricity, withdrew his funding from Just Stop Oil, stating that under the current government, protest cannot work. I would go so far as to say that anything that feeds into the Tories' culture war narrative is counterproductive. Just Stop Oil said he had been contributing about 16% of their overall funding. This idea that climate change politics has turned into a kind of culture war issue, and possibly even that Just Stop Oil is driving such a transformation event, bears some historical explaining. Why is it that political action that falls so clearly into the history of non-violence might seem to many people illegitimate, bordering on terroristic? One major part of the period of neoliberalism has been the struggle on behalf of the ruling classes to depoliticize society and make political behaviour as such seem unnecessary, as the mere pleading of special interest groups. Instead, all attempts to make change should be directed through the market and the processes of business. It's this broader trend of neoliberal individualization, the emptying out of politics and its replacement with markets, that makes Just Stop Oil's slow marching seem so radical and disruptive. Even quite quotidian disruption, not dissimilar in scale from the disruption sometimes caused by roadworks, seems like a huge affront to reasonableness. Everyday life is supposed to be a smooth space into which politics does not reach, and it's this that Just Stop Oil interrupts. In short, Just Stop Oil's strategy is to make visceral what is by now already widely known, that we are in a period of rapid climate change. Another criticism of Just Stop Oil runs that this battle for awareness has already been won. It's reasonable to characterise what JSO does as like enhanced awareness raising. This is Chris Saltmarsh again. There's this interesting dynamic where JSO and kind of XR in the early stages before them would define themselves against the kind of previous environmental movement, you know, Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace, which a big part of their focus has been, we'll raise awareness and, and, you know, eventually that will mean that governments will act or people will support government action. And I think, yeah, as I say, although JSO kind of define themselves against this previous mode of environmentalism, really there's a, there's a continuity there where the action that JSO is taking, whether it's disrupting a sporting event or a cultural institution or blocking a, a, a road, a motorway, um, how that you know they deem that to be successful if they've got a high profile media interview if it's been reported on we might say that awareness is actually no longer the problem instead as nicholas beret an academic who we spoke to on the recent rewilding podcast has written awareness is expanding into murky waters and getting more confused might we actually be at the end of the period when building climate awareness itself is the most important goal and if we are, then perhaps the task becomes something else that Chris Saltmarsh put to me. The construction of a positive alternative vision. Some groups, like Reclaim the Power in the UK and Endeglender in Germany, have traditions of camp construction, where they simultaneously develop visions for the future and disrupt fossil fuel infrastructure in the present. That's not the tradition that Chris comes from, although he spoke to me about the need to develop a similarly broad political vision. 
Well, I think that the political difference really is that, you know, this focus on um, on the, the singular demand of stopping oil and actually specifically just new oil and gas. I think, you know, clearly they'd have a broader politics around transitioning out of all oil and gas. But, you know, their demand is is uh, just new oil and gas. And I think this is a, is a really limited uh, politics, firstly, in that it's um, really just focusing on the negation of one pretty big, but, you know, one element of the problem. Um, whereas I think... For me, you know, the politics I've been articulating over the past few years is it's really crucial that we're propositional about what we want. You know, I think having an understanding that the fossil economy is, you know, one of the key structural elements of capitalism as a system as a whole, that requires not just saying, well, we don't like capitalism or we don't like fossil fuels. It requires saying, well, we actually want to build something new. We want to build, uh, in my in my case, kind of a socialist economy where we, yes, you know, discipline the fossil fuel industry, where we transition from fossil fuels to renewables, but also where we shift power relations, because ultimately having a kind of anti-capitalist or a socialist critique means recognizing that when we have this economy that prioritizes profit over people and planet, um, these are the relations that kind of undergird um, this this kind of systemic problem. And so, simply saying stop oil, actually, it doesn't it doesn't quite understand uh, the nature of the crisis. To some extent, this criticism is anticipated by the action at the Bibby Stockholm. The aperture there is a few clicks wider, taking in a broad sweep of the political frame, although it's not yet a positive vision, but still a desperate and humane plea for the pulling of the emergency brake on a system of increasing brutality. And make no mistake, that system is becoming increasingly brutal. Part of the theory of nonviolence is that the tendency of the states to crack down has an internal limit. When the government introduced a new policing bill or policing act to try to restrict protests further it was often i know that it was often seen as being a response to direct action and a sense that maybe direct action has failed because all that happens is you have an increased crackdown by police i don't see it as a failure because there is a limit to how much a government can try to restrict people this policing act which some of the um some of it was introduced through a statutory instrument and that's now being challenged in the courts by the good law project so it may be that the, the the measures that have been introduced are not actually legal in themselves. But even if they are legal, there is a limit to how much the government can crack down on protest. And either they'll continue to try to crack down and they will go too far and have to reverse, or they'll have to recognise that they cannot crack down any further and they will have to respond to our demands. As much as I wanted to think that this is true, I've really begun to feel in the last few years that this purported limit is just not there anymore. We've been sliding instead, in fits and starts, a long way in an authoritarian direction over the last 13 years of Conservative government. Just how far might it go? Just what lies at the other end of this tendency towards increasing authoritarianism is, as yet, of course, unknown. But perhaps the most pungent way it has been framed is as eco-fascism. Just Stop Oil obliquely referred to this idea in a statement. Our grandparents and their parents fought fascism, they say. And we will do the same. And elsewhere, drilling for new oil and gas is not just an environmental issue. It is genocide. Some of Just Stop Oil's supporters were particularly clear on what they saw as the urgency of the situation. For perhaps obvious reasons, they didn't want to be identified. 
The Bibby Stockholm is a floating prison ship, um, which the Home Office is hoping to um, keep refugees on, even though they don't want to be living there. And it's been deemed unsafe um, by multiple sources. It's important to take action about this um, because it is a definitive step towards concentration camps in the UK. And if we don't start taking action um, to stop refugees being treated in the way they are in this country, um, then at what point will we step in and take action? Um, When will we say enough is enough? There is an idea we might call the eco-fascist hypothesis, which is the idea that climate change might bring about some kind of new variant of fascism although exactly how, has often remained a bit opaque. It's an idea I'm personally quite familiar with. Under the name Sam Moore, I wrote a book with Alex Roberts called The Rise of Ecofascism, which explores this hypothesis. We argued that increasing authoritarianism around the climate crisis probably didn't have the kinds of limits that liberals tend to imagine it having, although that wouldn't necessarily make it fascist in the classic sense of the term. There were two distinct paths we laid out, One in which the right and far right increasingly put itself forward in defence of fossil fuels, following the path of delay and denialism they've been on for the last few decades. And another path in which they deliberately, and perhaps cynically, took on the idea of being the true defenders of the climate. Although these are two distinct paths, both might happen simultaneously at different scales, far-right politics never having shown much of an interest in consistency. So while Just Stop Oil are training their activists for solidarity and mindfulness, it's possible that a much wider social process is taking place, training its unwitting participants in the kind of reflexive brutality that characterises the work of border guards, the private security contractors who transport migrants, and the police. And the kind of prioritised security industries which supply the means to carry out this process are areas where the UK is a global leader. As Nicholas Beret has written, it is true that many of these border security jobs are carbon neutral. That might seem a perverse thing to point out, but in some ways it gets to one of the central aspects of Just Stop Oil's move in trying to stop the coach near the Bibby Stockholm. The green transition is already underway. Now the question is what kind of transition are we going to have? The one we are facing is not an equitable one, or a humane one, but a securitised one. But the political task here is not just being able to stop the transition we are currently on, but of being able to produce another, different transition that people like Chris Saltmarsh were so keen to advocate for. I think as leftists, we need to be clear that this isn't a socialist project or organisation. And the, the criticisms that we make of JSO should not be about tearing them down, but about informing what is the climate movement we want to build. And I think, yeah, the climate movement we want to build has to be socialist politically has to be oriented towards building mass organisations that can exert popular power. So through the labour movement, uh, in electoral politics where possible, uh, in communities where possible. There is so much more to say about this action, and so much more to discuss that I couldn't get to in time. I wanted to talk about Weymouth and Portland, the local communities, the way in which they have been run down systematically to produce a community that appears almost designed to have a backlash against migrants nearby, and about the extraordinary activism of local people to prevent that. I wanted to talk about the way in which mindfulness had transformed the people who I've seen, and I wanted to talk about burnout and fanaticism, as well as the ways that activists had prepared themselves for prison. But instead I'll end here. The timelines of climate change are long. 
To use a decidedly non-technical language, it's around 2060 that in some models, shit really starts to hit the fan. By then, I'll be 67. Not young, but not hugely old either. Will I die in a heatwave? Some people who took part in the action look younger than me, and children born now will still be under 40. But still, that's a long way away. That means commitment must be deep. And my sense from all the activists I spoke to is that they were, extremely unevenly, and sometimes in very different ways, cultivating the inner and outer resources for this long and deep transformation of themselves and the world around them. I spoke to someone who had attended a discussion after the action against their coach. Some of the activists, they said, had expressed regret that they hadn't allowed themselves to be run over by the coach carrying the migrants. They felt that in eventually stepping aside from it as it accelerated, instead of going under, they were preferring their own lives over the lives of those being transported on the bus. It's not uncommon for the right-wing press to describe Just Stop Oil activists as brainwashed. There's a kind of truth to this, although I might put it differently. There's a deep, subjective transformation required of them. Of course, there are many failure modes in this process. People can go off the rails badly. They can fall into the trap of mere fanaticism. They can certainly burn themselves out, and they can absolutely become personally quite annoying. But I couldn't help but think there was something also quite profound and important going on with and inside these activists. In thinking about political commitment over the last couple of weeks, I looked, as presumably many others did, to writing on Palestinian resistance. One piece particularly stuck out to me for the way it linked Palestinian resistance to climate change activism without drawing any simplistic equivalences between the two, although it did point out the deep connections between the British imperial project in whose shell Zionism had found its means, and fossil fuels. It's by Andreas Malm, who has himself been a critic of Just Stop Oil in the past, and it is called The Walls of the Tank. You can read it online in Salvage magazine. It begins with a paragraph called Nakba. How do you keep on fighting when everything is lost? Ask a Palestinian. A Palestinian is someone who is wading knee-deep in rubble. Palestinian politics is always already post-apocalyptic. It is about surviving after the end of the world, and, in the best case, salvaging something out of all that has been lost. And it ends, as you might hear, in a world of cascading catastrophes. The road to survival is paved with maximalist rejectionism. It might take centuries to realise the demands, but if we give up on them, there is nothing left other than learning to die. Just Stop Oil wanted me to add the following message. We call for everyone to join us in civil resistance. Join our webinar panel talk on the 25th of October with Assad Raymond, War and Want, Tara Povey from Refugee Action, and various others, where we'll be talking about the intersection of climate migrant justice and letting you know how you can join the resistance. Sign up to Slow March with us throughout November, and join us on the Mass March People vs. Oil on the 18th of November. You can find the link to the webinar in the show description. Thank you, in no particular order, to Alice Swift, Indigo Rumbelow, Nicholas Beret, Jake Colvin, Tyrone Scott, Chris Saltmarsh, Timothy Lenton, Chal Ravens, the trainers and activists of JSO, and all those who have elected to remain anonymous. 
My name is Richard Holmes. This is Navarro FM. Thank you for listening. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarro Media from just £1 a month. Head to navarra.media forward slash support.